Welcome to the Hirschfeld Century Podcast. I'm Katherine Eastman, the Archives Manager of the Al Hirschfeld Foundation. And I'm David Leopold, the Creative Director. And this week we are talking about uh, New York City Center as seen by Hirschfeld. Correct. It's its 75th anniversary on December 11th. Oh, it's coming up. Yes, indeed. Uh, make sure you wear your party hat. Oh, I've already got it written in my calendar. <laughs> Uh, and we're particularly interested because nobody drew more of what City Center did than uh, Al Hirschfeld. To be fair, nobody drew a lot of things more than Al Hirschfeld. Yes. TV guide covers. Yes, that's true. <laughs> and that this is just added to the list. Added to the list, the most of. Right. <laughs> um, but City Center is a very interesting place because it's really the first true performing arts center in, this, in, in America. Yeah, set the stage for non-New Yorkers. What okay. what exactly is City Center? How did it come into being? Well, it started, uh, it's on 55th Street between 6th and 7th Avenue. And it started life as a Masonic temple. Mm. It was built the, in the building. The, yeah, the building. Right. Um, in 1924, uh, they opened this building. It was a big deal. It had a massive 3,000 seat auditorium. Oh, wow. Um, it was, had really ornate decoration, very Arabian, mm. you know, for the Masons with their fezes and everything. I mean, the details were, are incredible. They go down to the doorknobs. Mm. You know, they're just, it's, it was really very elaborate. Unfortunately uh, for the Masons, they couldn't afford the taxes after the crash mm. and uh, the Wall Street uh, crash in 1929. And eventually they had to give up the building to the city because of back taxes. Oh, wow. Now, the city was looking at this building and thinking it would make a great parking lot. <laughs> Which it probably, I mean, yeah, we well, always need more parking in New York. <laughs> exactly. And that was the feeling. Mm. Fortunately for everyone except maybe a couple of parking lot attendants. Right. Um, mayor LaGuardia, Fiorella LaGuardia, who was the mayor of New York at that time. And who I call the airport man, and David gets very upset with me. <laughs> uh, LaGuardia is so much more than an airport. <laughs> he was really a remarkable, remarkable uh, leader for New York City during the Depression. And he was the mayor? Yeah. Okay. Famous for reading the Sunday comics, the Sunday funnies on the radio. For everybody, in case you couldn't afford to buy the paper. Oh, that's cute. Yeah, you know, the little flower. Uh, really a remarkable guy. And uh, he, during the Depression, he realized that people needed entertainment and art. And he was staging free concerts and free operas in city parks and whatnot. Mm. And he, he and the city council president, Newbold Morris, wanted to find a place that they could host. Uh, An indoor a, space. Indoor space. Mm-hmm. Um. They didn't think at all about this Masonic temple. It was a woman, Jean Darrymple, who was a publicist mm -hmm. and an artist manager, uh, sometimes playwright, and uh, even early in her career, an actress, mm. um, who had a bunch of uh, clients who wanted to put on a concert to support war bonds. And she identified uh, this Masonic temple, it was empty, it, so it wouldn't require anything other than turning on the lights, turning on the heat. Uh, and she convinced the city to let her put on this concert. Mm. She invited LaGuardia. Now, in this time, uh, although the story is that it was decided that night, it was already in, in process. Um, and on December 11th, 1943, uh, they gave this concert for war bonds that was such a success that LaGuardia, Newbold Morris, city council decided that this would really make a great uh, art center. Mm. Really, they were thinking about it as a concert hall. Right. Um, LaGuardia, as I said, loved music and he loved opera. Uh, and he thought that's what they would be presenting there. Mm. Uh, Jean Darrymple had a much bigger idea. Mm. And indeed, she was, she started off as a volunteer. And eventually, she would sort of be made the head of it. And was she, she was a friend of Hirschfeld's. Jean Darrymple and Hirschfeld almost certainly were friends. Mm. Uh, how close they were, I have no idea. But they worked together on, I mean, he did drawings for a lot of her clients uh, and a lot of the performances that she was responsible for. Mm. Uh, anybody in the New York arts press would have known Hirschfeld and would have right. been at parties with him. And Al Hirschfeld was the, you know, 
the amiable guy, the guy yeah. you that everybody enjoyed spending time with. He was just a nice guy. Yeah. And he would have seen in Gene Darrymple somebody who was a real doer mm. and who was making things happen. Um, he would have supported the efforts of City Center because the idea of bringing, in, in the words of City Center, uh, the best entertainment for the lowest prices, that fit into his ideal as well. Right, right. Because, you know, you could usually afford the Sunday Times. Right. Most people could. Right, exactly. Have to be well, right. his art was very democratic in right. the sense that it appeared in places, uh, you know, newspapers, uh, walls of uh, theaters, right. uh, posters. You know, it was it was art for the masses. Right. Really. Um, and, as, and as we said in a previous podcast, it really fit into his political ideals. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's not why he did it, but it was a nice sort of happy byproduct. So Hirschfeld... Uh, uh, um, would have gone to many performances at City Center because what happens is they immediately start programming not just music and, and opera. When I say they did opera, they, they ended up creating their own company. Mm. New York City Opera was created at City Center um, right. and it would become a very important organization because it was pre- presenting operas at a very low ticket price. Right. Um, they couldn't afford to hire you know, the greatest singers in mm. the world, mm-hmm. they would be, they would have been too expensive. So it became this platform for younger singers. Right. And primarily American singers. Interesting. And that allowed a lot of new voices to come into the opera scene. Um, perhaps the best known is Beverly Sills. Mm, right. Um, she tried out for the New York City Opera, I think, eight times over three years. Oh, wow. Uh, and eventually she got in. Wow. And while she made, well, her first performance was in Deflator Mouse, the thing that really made her a star, she sang the lead role in the ballad of Baby Doe. Oh. And she, and she slowly but surely would go on to perform in, I think, 15 different operas, over 65 performances, between uh, 1955 and 1964. Mm. And she would stay with the company for the rest of her career, eventually running it. And so she became the uh, director. Look at that. Yeah. Um, Hirschfeld drew Beverly Sills not early in his career because he drew very little opera. He did, yeah, yeah. There's a period in the 80s, I believe, where yeah, late he draws... Yeah, late 70s, uh, early 80s. He draws a lot of um, met- metropolitan opera drawings. Yes, They're these were nice. for uh, radio broadcasts. Right, right. And uh, so... He did a lot of the advertising for that. Yes, yep. exactly. Um, but other but than otherwise, that, yeah, it's it's far, it's few and far between. Right, you get the three tenors, right. some of the late uh, 20th century, very popular opera singers. Red Turfle. Yeah, Exactly. Um, but for most of his career, he didn't draw opera. Right. Um, but Beverly Sills was one of those performers, like a Pavarotti, who... Transcends the genre. Exactly. Yeah. Couldn't have said it better. Uh, well, thank you, David. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she became a personality that a lot of people knew. Mm. I mean, they would do specials on TV, and she sang with Carol Burnett. Mm. You know, it was, it was that kind of thing. People yeah. knew Beverly Sills. She was essentially... A yeah, household name and, and their sort of entry into the world of opera. Mm, mm-hmm. And she had the kind of face that was perfect for Hirschfeld to draw. Yeah, yeah. And, very, and she, was, she was known as Bubbles to her friends. Bubbles, that looks and like, yeah, I could see that. She was a Brooklyn girl, you know, uh, and I'm sure she knew Hirschfeld and Hirschfeld knew her. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, there are, there's a great black and white drawing that he did of her. And there's also a color... Uh, um, Sort of a color version of the same. Drawing. Yeah, it's very similar. It's very similar to that that black and white drawing. Um, the black and white one was made into a print. Yes. And then the color is a stereo review cover. And yes. that's another podcast episode we haven't even thought about. All the stereo <laughs> review covers are oh, those are color just ones. beautiful. Yeah, they're really beautiful. Ray Charles, uh, Earl Hines, yeah. Frank Sinatra. There's some really great ones. Yeah, that's a good idea. We see. It's is there an Isaac Stern? Yes, there's a great yeah, Isaac yeah. Stern and Eugene Ormandy. Oh, yeah, the Ormandy is the one I was yeah. thinking of, yeah. Uh, so, now, music was a big part of City Center, certainly at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leopold right. Sikowski actually created the New York Symphony there. Oh, and it was a really great time because so many uh, musicians, and, and, and really Sikowski himself, mm-hmm. um, we're talking about 43, 44, you couldn't travel in Europe. 
the war was on. Uh, and right, right. they were all in New York. Mm. So he had Roy the sort of pick of the litter. Mm. And uh, for the and and he thought it was very important to bring classical music to uh, everyone. everyone. Leopold Stokowski uh, started the New York City Symphony at City Center mm. as a way to bring classical music to a wide range of people at a low ticket price. And he even gave his own money uh, oh, wow. to make it happen. He did, I don't think he took uh, a fee right. for conducting or bringing the uh, uh, orchestra together. It was his passion project. Right. It, it was something he felt very strongly about. Mm -hmm. I think we lose sight today that especially in mid-century America, there was a civic pride um, that we were in this together. You know, the right. country had gone through the Depression. Now they were going war. through World War yeah. II. And we were all on the same side. Right. And the idea of doing something for your fellow, uh, in this case, New Yorkers, mm -hmm. or your fellow Americans, that was a source of pride. Mm. It wasn't as if you were giving a handout to somebody. Right. It was, it was a way of saying, I'm an American too, and I want to do my part. Right. Um, it was a period of sacrifice. And so Leopold Stokowski was giving up his time and of his money to help this come into being. Mm -hmm. Well, when the war ended, he was in, very much in demand in Europe. And uh, he wanted to fulfill those commitments. It was important for him and a lot of musicians, a lot of performers, to go back to Europe to uh, support their countries. Stokowski wasn't American. He was he was born in England. Yes, yeah. Polish descent. Right, but, right, uh, right. With his England. name, but born in England. Yeah. Right. Um, and it, and there was just this general sense you you've got to go back now mm -hmm. and uh, help rebuild, rebuild right. what had been destroyed in World War Two. Right. So City Center was at a loss. I mean, how do you mm. replace Leopold Stokowski? Right. And he suggested, and they thought it was a great idea, to get this very young but very popular conductor from the New York Philharmonic right. who had been making a name for himself. And I think you've heard of him. His name is Leonard Bernstein. Yes, yes. And I, you know, I, to me, Bernstein's always the poor man's carry-on, but that's beside the point. <laughs> Please, Leonard Bernstein family members, it's not me. It's Catherine Eastman. Well, he was a great, he was a great admirer and student of carry-ons, oh, sure. I believe. So, well, they yeah. had and a they, passion in Mahler. They strangely look yeah. the same. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's a, I'm, I'm okay with Bernstein. So, so well, Bernstein, Bernstein comes onto the scene here. Bernstein was this very... He was a young person's conductor. Right. You know, here's all right. these white-haired old, old guys. guys. Yep. <laughs> and then here's... Boy, that doesn't sound familiar. Yeah. <laughs> and then here's Leonard Bernstein, yeah. who makes a name for himself, taking over the baton one night with almost no preparation on a mm -hmm. radio broadcast and making a big hit. And, you know, uh, Leonard Bernstein was had ambitions. And so now he was being offered his own symphony to conduct. Wow. And he jumped at it. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> it was 1946. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, the kids, the young people who went, Lenny was their guy. Right. You know, and he proved to be incredibly popular. Mm. Uh, and this was a place that people, I mean, he brought all these young people into classical music. Right. You know, at the same time, he's already just written the music for On the Town. Mm. And, uh, you know, he's he's becoming the polymath that that right. he was. And in fact, Hirschfeld draws him in 1946 for Seventeen Magazine. Yes. We, um, quite the, a few of uh, Seventeen Magazine drawings from the 50s. Uh, from the or, 40s. 40s, excuse me. Um, and everybody's always surprised when we tell them, you know, oh, this was from Seventeen Magazine. They all say, what? Seventeen? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was Frank uh, Sinatra, um, Artie Shaw, Benny Goodman. Oh, yeah. Glenn Miller. The, all these great jazz yeah. figures. Yeah. Um, in every issue of Seventeen magazine, from its very first issue in 1944, wow. uh, for the first two years, there was a Hirschfeld in every issue. Wow! And it only stops when Hirschfeld goes uh, leaves the country for nine months for uh, Westward Ha. Well, for Westward right. Ha, and when he comes back, the focus is no longer on musicians, but it's on Hollywood stars, mm, and he mm -hmm. does a series of drawings for them. Right. Um, and that goes close to the end of uh, uh, the 40s. Yeah. Um, but Leonard Bernstein was a musical figure that young people, and if you were 17, mm -hmm. Leonard Bernstein was right up your alley. I could see it. <laughs> and so, and it's the first time he shows Leonard Bernstein uh, playing piano, conducting, writing. And writing, yeah. You know, it's a... It's, the classic Hirschfeld, uh, multiple hands. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, and 
So now this would be the only real music drawing that he did of anybody at City Center. Right. Um, what City Center was known for and, um, and what it's still known for is dance, mm. which is funny because LaGuardia was not a big fan of dance. He didn't understand, you know, men jumping around in tights. Right, right. He, he was uncomfortable with it. Mm. Uh, fortunately, he was uh, had the minority opinion on that. <laughs> and he was not in charge. <laughs> right. Uh, exactly. Because that's what's interesting about City Center as well. Although the city owned the building, they did not really run it. They were or, not a city institution. They were not. Yeah. I mean, Affiliated the first officially. years, they were very involved in the budgeting mm-hmm. and the planning mm-hmm. and whatnot. But a, but the whole idea was to make City Center self-sufficient. Right, right. And so their biggest contribution was not money. It was time. Mm. They uh, leased the building for like a dollar a year. Oh, wow. Um, they did maintenance on the building, which is substantial. Sure, it's a huge building. It's a, it is a huge building. And we said before, ornate building. <laughs> yeah, and and it's, well, what's interesting, crazy actually, is the the theater, the auditorium, was had all this ornate decoration. And sometime by the late 40s, they decide to whitewash it all uh, because they thought it was, I don't know, maybe too distracting mm. or, it, oh, no. you know, they, were, they yeah. weren't trying to erase the Masonic Temple, but they weren't a Masonic Temple. Oh, right, right. And so it would be much more normal for them to have, mm. uh, you know, uh, plain. plain walls. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of the decoration in city center, in the hallways and the lobbies, mm-hmm. was covered over with white paint. No. And it was that way for 30 years. Mm. Um, they only started uh, bringing it back in the 80s, and in 2011, they did an incredible restoration right. where they didn't bring it back to exactly what it was, but they based the designs on the kinds of things that right. were there. Right. And to go in there now, it's it's, it's really incredible. Yeah. I mean, so here's the other thing. It's a 3,000-seat auditorium at, at first. Um, it was not set up for musical performances. Mm. Uh, it wasn't set up it for any like type of performance. It was like a high school auditorium or something. Exactly. Yeah, like- yeah. And there was no amplification. Mm. Uh, they actually, early on, they realized they needed microphones to reach, you know, so everyone could hear. Mm. And they didn't know where to get them. And the Connecticut legislature was on summer break in the summer of 1944. And they, I don't know how it worked, but they borrowed the microphones and amplification that the Connecticut legislature had, and they brought it down to city center so they could use it. That's funny. I mean, it's it's weird. I mean, but it's it's all part of the history. Now, the first dance company that ever performed at city center was the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo. Right. And Hirschfeld didn't draw them at that time, although he had drawn them 10 years earlier in a really wonderful sort of exciting 1933 drawing. Yeah, classic 30s drawing, signed in Russian. Signed in Russian. So, so it must have been in Russia. Don't call Robert Moeller. <laughs> was it was it in Russia? He no, said, no, he oh, didn't no, he didn't. Oh no, no, he this was in New York. So he just chose because it was the Ballet Russe. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Interesting. Uh, one of their early attractions was uh, Paul Draper and um, Larry Adler. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Draper was a great dancer, and Larry. This seems like such an unlikely act, mm. but this was extremely popular. Paul Draper would dance, and Larry Adler would play the harmonica. That sounds fun. It was. It was. Must have been exciting to watch. They became a regular feature. Was it sort of Center. like a country? Like a like I would think it was like a country type. No, no, they did no? all kinds of things. Oh, okay. All kinds of things. They and they toured all over the country, probably all over the world. Wow. No, well, and now the the one of the leading choreographers for the Ballet Russe was a young. Russian uh, dancer and choreographer. I'm sure you've heard of him, George Balanchine. Uh, who? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Balanchine and Lincoln Kirstein had been trying to create a school of ballet mm. since uh, the mid-30s. Oh, wow. And it had gone through several iterations. They had come up with the ballet theater. He had he was working with the uh, Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo. Mm-hmm. Um but when they came to City Center, I think they saw this as this could be our home. Right. And they understood that it was presenting a wide range of things. Because, right. I mean, after the first concert, the ver- the, the, a week later, the first performances really start happening there. Right. And it's uh, Gertrude Lawrence uh, in uh, Susan and God, which had been a 
hit on Broadway a few years earlier. And Sidney Kingsley uh, allowed them to do The Patriots, a play that he had written mm. several years earlier. Now, um, I thought the first performance was M- Monte Carlo. Well, that was the first dance performance. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. That happens okay. in early 1944. Gotcha. Um, and... But that's the thing is, the, here they all of a sudden had this performing arts center, so they had to book it. Right. They had to right. fill. All right, let's the, do it. <laughs> yeah. And so they scrambled around and they yeah. got whatever they could get. Okay, yeah. And, uh, and, the, ballet, and, and the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo had been performing at the Met, but they wanted to reach the masses. They mm. felt that ticket prices and just the... The feeling was too snobby over there. We know about ticket prices at the Met. Yeah. <laughs> we know all about it. Peter Galba, if you're listening. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, they wanted to uh, reach a wider audience. Gene mm-hmm. um, Darrymple said the first time Glamour came to City Center was when the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo came. I mean, it was mm-hmm. it, 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 they brought in all these people who loved dance who came to... The opening in in chauffeur limousines and you know wore uh, uh, tuxedos and gowns and things like that right. and it was a big deal because other times they were really servicing people from they were their audience was made up of just about anybody from any of the five boroughs of New York um, they had a two dollar top ticket and um, it was as I said it was made to be low prices for so everybody could come. So, David, you've mentioned several times, you know, the low ticket price. Was, was that called popular prices? Oh, yeah. Is that what that was like the slogan? <laughs> that was a slogan. Yeah. And uh, they and it was much more. I mean, it was for everything. But when they started doing theater, that was a really big deal. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, because when they brought in theater, the first things they brought in were shows that had been hits on Broadway, had gone out on tour and they would finish their tour by doing a couple of weeks at City Center. Right. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. No, Let's I want to talk about the dance. To dance. Yeah. So Balanchine starts the New York City Ballet okay. at City Center oh. in 1948. And it becomes probably the most important dance company in America. Hmm. You really, though, you really can't talk about dance in America without realizing the role that City Center played mm-hmm. because not only was it the birthplace and the home of the New York City Ballet, and that meant Balanchine for from 1948 to 1964 when the New York City Ballet moved to Lincoln Center, okay. created really some of his greatest works uh, that were first performed on the stage at City Center. Right. Uh, in the same year that they started New York City Ballet, a young dancer and budding choreographer saw it. Uh, his name was Jerome Robbins. He wrote Balanchine and said, this is exactly the kind of company that uh, that uh, I, I would like to be a part of, mm. and I'm happy to do anything you want me to do. And Balanchine said, come on. <laughs> and eventually, Robbins came there as a dancer, but also as a choreographer. So all right. of his important early works were also, also premiered and were created at uh, at City Center. Right. Um some of the great dancers, Melissa Hayden, um, you know, like the New York City Opera was the first uh, major opera company who uh, who had on contract African American performers, mm-hmm. uh, Camilla Williams mm-hmm. and uh, Todd Duncan. Mm. Uh, Todd Duncan was the uh, first uh, Porgy and Porgy and Bess. Oh, gotcha. Uh, and the New York City Ballet was also that kind of company. Arthur Mitchell who recently mm-hmm. passed away, great dancer, um, was the first African-American ever signed to be a principal dancer at, a, at an American ballet company. Oh, wow. So that was sort of this, the, what New, New York City Center was all about. It was not about perpetuating the same old things. Right. It was really, it was a place that looked like its audience. Right, right. Uh, so... Again, Hirschfeld didn't draw too many individual ballets there. He mm-hmm. would draw, um, there's a, actually a great drawing of the New York City Ballet performing on Omnibus, oh, which yeah. was on TV in 1955, hosted right. by Alistair Cook. And the drawing shows, uh, I think, Queen Elizabeth, who was getting coronated at that time, and Helen Hayes and uh, was performed something. It, this was a show that was kind of like City Center. Mm. Uh, Omnibus showed many different genres of dance, right. uh, not of dance, of, of performing arts in one program. 
at a very high level of uh, sophistication. Mm. And that's what City Center was doing. Um, so later on, he does a drawing of Arthur Mitchell and Suzanne Farrell doing Slaughter on 10th Avenue. Right. Uh, when it enters the New York City ballet repertory. Uh, and uh, he would eventually draw Balanchine rehearsing in 1974, after uh, 10 years after he, uh, he had left uh, City Center. Mm. But it was it could have been a drawing of, of Balanchine at City Center. Sure, sure. Um, then the other great dance companies that were there, the Joffrey Ballet was really just a small struggling um, ballet company until they came to City Center. They had a great uh, two-week season there. And they were. In, this was after the New York City Ballet had left, and uh, they were invited to become a resident company. So they mm. became City Center Joffrey Ballet. So did they, like, replace New York City Ballet? Yes. Okay, once they so went to Lincoln, Lincoln Center. So Lincoln Center was uh, built in 1964, right. in part to house uh, uh, productions that had been at City Center mm. because City Center understood that its space was limited mm. in, in, to mm-hmm. some extent. Right. And then in a last-minute uh, backroom drama, mm, sounds uh, like it. Lincoln yeah. Center tried to ace out uh, City Center from mm. being involved in Lincoln Center. Mm. But the fact is, it was literally written into the founding documents of oh, Lincoln okay. Center. And City Center, uh, the City Center uh, of Music and Drama, I think still manages the State Theater, where the ballet and the opera performed. Oh wow! Um, and they they did a lot of the, Lincoln Center did a lot of things that City Center did, right? Um, and to some way, to the detriment of City Center. Mm. But City Center didn't just stop when it when the New York City Opera and the New York City Ballet left, right? They started new things, right? And so one of those new things was the City Center Joffrey Ballet, and for Joffrey, it ended up being. Uh, the decisive moment in their mm, career. I bet. Um, it, they they really make a commitment to doing both new work and reviving older work. Mm. They're the first and perhaps only dance company ever to be featured on Time Magazine's cover. Uh, wow. And that happens when they're at City Center. They get on Life Magazine's cover mm. as well um, uh, with different very contemporary ballets. And they would stay at City Center until I think about 1975. Now, are there any drawings of Joffrey? There is only one drawing of the Jaffrey Ballet in a drawing called A Night of Stars. Oh, okay. okay. It's a composite. So it's a composite yeah. of, he, he showed different things. Uh, right. Kitty Carlisle Hart's there, right. and I think Gregory Hines, and Eli Wallach and Ann Jackson. Right. I mean, it's a really it's a crazy <laughs> collection. It was a special event that was happening in Florida at the time. Gotcha. Um, so he didn't really draw the Jaffrey Ballet. Uh, he would, of course, draw lots of dancers for the rhythm portfolio around that time. So the other dance companies that were part of City Center and still are part of City Center, mm-hmm. in 1971, the Alvin Ailey uh, American Dance Theater, mm. uh, a really, really important dance company and one of the, one of the great American dance companies, um, they were going through a financial crisis. They needed a new home, and they started to present Seasons at at city center and they've been doing it for close to 50 years now and do we Um, have any drawings of that there's no drawings of any particular performances well that's not true uh in 19 oh i don't know 92 there uh, i'm sorry uh close to 2002 Mm. um there is a drawing of judith jameson who became the artistic director of the ailey um american dance theater uh, after Alvin Ailey's death, he, uh, the handpicked successor, um, doing a dance called Echo Far From Home. That was from 1998. Uh, 1998, correct. Um, and then he did a wonderful drawing of Judith Jameson in a Broadway show called The Only World in Town in 1977. Right. Um, but it could have been Judith Jameson uh, doing any of her great dances, Cry, right. Revelations. Um, that first premiered at City Center. Um, Martha Graham would eventually bring her company mm. and presented their New York seasons at City Center. Mm. As she would do, uh, I think, seven, nine world premieres actually there, wow. including her final work, uh, Maple Leaf Rag, mm. uh, in 1990. Uh, Hirschfeld did two portraits of Martha Graham in the late 80s. And right. it, was re- it was at this time she was doing all of her New York work at City Center. City Center. 
So when you're talking, when I say that uh, you can't talk about dance in America without talking about City Center, um, it's because home of uh, New York City Ballet, uh, 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 one time the home of the Joffrey Ballet, Alvin Ailey, Merce Cunningham, who is a very different type of dancer, actually makes his first appearance with the New York City Ballet in 1948 at City Center. Eventually, it creates his own company, and in 1978, starts to present their New York seasons at City Center. Uh, had at least five or six world premieres. Uh, Hirschfeld drew Cunningham near the end of his career, in, once in a, um, a drawing with all of Merce's stuff, mm. TVs yeah, and yeah. bicycle wheels that were classic parts of, uh, of, of what he did in 1999. Mm. And then, then in 2000, he did a drawing of, of Merce Cunningham and Paul Taylor, mm. who were the two great uh, male modern dancers. Um, Paul Taylor start, uh, first appeared at City Center in the 50s, um, started uh, his own company, had his first world premiere at City Center in 1969 with Private Domain, and starting in 1977 to 2011, presented annual seasons at City Center every year mm. and uh, premiered a lot of work or New York premieres. Uh, Twyla Tharp, uh, was, uh, her company performed their New York seasons fairly frequently at um, City Center. And the only drawing of Twyla Tharp was when she did Moving Out with Billy Joel. Mm. So it's sort of just the conclusion of her time at City right. Center. And it wasn't for a production at City Center, but it's very much what she was doing at City Center. Right. If you have the chance, uh, every fall they do something called the Fall for Dance Festival. Mm -hmm. it, it, they bring in companies from all over the country and all over the world, premiering new work or doing some of their, sort of their greatest hits. Um, for two weeks, every seat in the theater is $15. Wow. And it is an incredible experience. Mm. If you wanna see gr the great dance that's going on right now, from anywhere, right? Uh, these two weeks in October uh, is the Fall for Dance Festival at City Center is the place you have to be. Mm. And of course, all during the year, Alvin Ailey presents their series there, Dance Theater of Harlem presents their, uh, uh, Lars right. Lubavitch, uh, I mean, everybody. Mm. I mean, if you're in dance, you have performed at City Center and you're probably still performing at City mm. Center. Then there's one other thing that's not exactly dance <laughs> and it's not exactly theater. <laughs> It is uh, a French uh, performer, uh, pantomimist, uh, by the name of Marcel Marceau. Right. Uh, really, again, if you're talking about mid-20th century and you talked about mime, mm, you course. were talking about Marcel Marceau. Who else Marceau. are you going to talk about? Right. <laughs> uh, he, um, he starts performing in America and he, and, uh, it's, it, he, he thinks he'd like to come at City Center, but he's like, I don't know if it'll what I do, which is mm. literally one man on stage, right. will work in this massive auditorium. Right, right. That's a fair concern. Right. Well, it turns out what he did what could be read by the last mm. row of the last balcony. Oh, wow. And he became another fixture at City Center, mm. presenting annual performances there for decades. Wow. Um, in fact, the film Rosemary's Baby, yeah. Uh, there is a scene of Marcel Marceau, this would be the late 60s, yeah. uh, performing at City oh, Center. Oh, that's funny. Hirschfeld drew him several times at City Center. Uh, once doing, uh, it, it was later redrawn and published as a print mm. of uh, Marcel Marceau running in a windstorm. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's, it's a great He's piece. He's got all with, the feet. Yeah, Marcel, Marceau has probably about uh, six feet. Yeah. Um, there's another one where he's captured a butterfly. Mm -hmm. um, and then he would do a piece in which um, he did it for a limited edition print of Marcel Marceau not doing anything right. except being, being Marceau. Marceau. Yeah. And, and he was, of course, the perfect kind of performer that Hirschfeld mm. uh, liked to draw because right. it, there was no words. It was right. all movement. It was all expressive uh, language through through movement, and that right. was perfect for Hirschfeld. So it's not surprising that uh, over the years Hirschfeld did not one but two prints, an etching and a lithograph, yeah. um, and did some wonderful drawings. And those were all taken from performances at City Center. Oh wow! 
So he is, as I said, the bridge between dance and theater. <laughs> right, it's right in between. Right, exactly. And, and he and and Hirschfeld drew more theater uh, at City Center than anything else. Right. Uh, one of the first productions at City Center was Paul Robeson in Othello. Mm. Now, uh, Robeson was the first black actor in America, right, to play Othello mm. um, on a you know in a major production, right. Um, it was a controversial production. I'm sure. Uh, because Uta Hagen played Desdemona. Oh. And, you know, the black and the white then, the only place they really got along was in Hirschfeld drawings. Right, right. Uh, but Jose Ferrer, who was married to Uta Hagen, played Iago. Mm. Um, the production was a big hit. Longest running uh, Shakespeare on, in Broadway history. Oh, wow. Uh, it eventually toured the country. Mm. And as it was winding down its tour... City Center asked Robeson and Uta Hagen and, and Jose Ferrer if they would bring the production to City Center to be able to present it at a low ticket price. Right. And Uta Hagen and Jose Ferrer were all for it. Robeson had some concerns. Uh, the critics had been very good to him in New York, had been very nice to him, and had been praiseworthy as production. But he wasn't sure he wanted to give them a second chance. Right. <laughs> And uh, he resisted That's until uh, a dinner. Gene Darrymple invited uh, Robeson, uh, Uta Hagen, Jose Ferrer, and uh, LaGuardia to dinner at her home. Mm. And LaGuardia uh, essentially buttonholed Robeson and told him it was his duty oh, well. <laughs> to perform this at a low price so that New Yorkers could see the work. Right. And, you know, for a $2 top ticket. And that convinced Robeson. And mm. So he, he brought it in. Hirschfeld didn't draw that production. He drew the original right. uh, Broadway production, but for all intents and purposes, it might as well have been right. the same, same production. Um, another early uh, uh, show that went in that had been on Broadway, had toured, and would continue touring was The Merry Widow. Mm. Uh, that's also in 40, that's also 45 that they do it. Uh, Hirschfeld drew the original Broadway production. Um, and not uh, necessarily the city center production. Mary Widow's 43. 43. Well, that's when it appeared on Broadway. Oh, I'm sorry. But not but it was the, that, I'm sorry. The drawings from 1943. The city center production is 45. Right. But it was virtually identical. Right. Right. The and f- that's what they were doing. They were taking the hit Broadway shows and then bringing them to right. city center after. You essentially saw the, the road company. Right. Right. Because they didn't have the wherewithal to create their own company. They wanted to fill the space. The first right. show that they did, uh, that the first musical that was done at uh, City Center was The New Moon. And that, like of their people? No, they, they, oh, that oh. was also someone else's production. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. It was a company of 100. You know, it was, that's when you had big companies. They took their first big musical hit at um, City Center was Carmen Jones, Oscar Hammerstein's Carmen Jones. Mm-hmm. And uh, it over three weeks, it played to 50,000 people mm-hmm. at City Center. This wow. is in 1945. But they're still bringing shows in at right. that point. Right, exactly. It, they don't start producing their own shows until the late 40s. One of the first ones was something that Herschel drew. It was, well, actually, this is, I'm, I'm wrong about that. Uh, Maurice Evans was an actor manager who, who brought shows to Broadway and then would tour around the country. He was of that generation of troopers okay. that uh, believed you did a Broadway season and then it, it was your obligation to take it across the country. Catherine Cornell. Right, exactly. Uh, like Catherine Cornell. He brought his production of Man and Superman right. to uh, City Center. They used Hirschfeld's drawing as the poster. Mm-hmm. This had George Bernard Shaw um, sort of uh, standing over. Yeah. Well, very much similar to the My Fair yeah, Lady yeah. idea. Um, he is sort of crouched over a, a, a proscenium stage and he's a- operating the marionettes of Maurice right. Evans and uh, um, a woman, the, the, the female lead in the show. Um, Francis Rowe. Francis Rowe. Now, Evans liked it so much that uh, he was asked to become the director of the New York Theatre Company. And so the next play that he did, the next Shaw that he did, he started at City Center. Oh, nice. And that was The Devil's Disciple. Okay. And Hirschfeld did a drawing for The Times that appeared the Sunday before the show opened. Mm-hmm. 
uh, he would also do a drawing for the Playbill cover. Right. And now this is the this is the Playbill at City Center? Oh, yeah, Playbill at City Center okay. and then uh, on Broadway as well. Right, right. Um, and it was a big hit at City Center, and it would go on to be a big hit on Broadway, and mm. it would tour the country. Mm. Um, Jose, uh, Maurice Evans did a season there. Uh, then Jose Ferrer was asked to uh, lead the company, and he did very interesting plays, Volpone, which right. was, a, I think, a restoration comedy, mm. and classic Hirschfeld brings us into the rehearsal room yeah. with uh, Jose Ferrer and Richard Worf and uh, Paula Lawrence, you know, his old girlfriend. Yeah. Um, and interestingly enough, right before this, he had drawn Dolly Haas, his second wife, in uh, her great Broadway performance, which was the lute song, right. which they had revived to just play at City Center. Mm. Um, so there's a drawing of the insect comedy with George Coloris. I like that one. Yeah, it's a, it's a really fun, and I think kind of a different type of drawing. Yeah. The, 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 um, the way he, he does the fabric of, of uh, Cloris's clothes is, I think, very contemporary for the time. Mm-hmm. And probably very accurate to what the what he was wearing. Yeah, but yeah. you don't see Hirschfeld sort of scribble like that in a lot yeah, of drawings. Yeah. Uh, so there was uh, there was a revival of the heiress, Ruth and Gus Gutz's mm-hmm. uh, the heiress with uh, Basil Rathbone, and uh, I don't think Wendy Hiller played it there. Margaret Margaret Phillips, Phillips. Yeah. right? Um, then they started they they uh, Dream Girl with Judy Holiday had been a hit on Broadway. And they brought that in soon, actually, after it closed on Broadway, even mm. before it went on tour. Um, they started their own theater. They had started their own theater company. Uh, they were looking for plays to do. Now, here's the thing is they couldn't do new plays because Broadway producers were understandably nervous that if uh, City Center started to do new plays at a $2 top ticket. Nobody would then buy the Broadway price after. Exactly. That makes exactly. sense. So City Center became the first organization in New York devoted to reviving shows. Mm. And it, that doesn't sound like such an incredible thing. Right. Not, not today where everything's a revival. A lot of things are revivals. I'm going to stick by my original <laughs> statement. Everything's a revival. But in the 1940s and 1950s, revivals were almost unheard of. Right. Well, because there have, there's not that... Um, there wasn't a the body standards of work to pull are, right, from. Right, right, right. <laughs> that that is true, but also, you know, uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein didn't want to revive an old show; they wanted right, to do they a, new to make a new show. Yeah. George Kaufman was writing new shows every season. Right. Uh, Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams, they were writing new shows right. every season. It was a popular form of entertainment. And uh, do you think they thought people wouldn't don't want to see it again? Do you think they thought people always wanted something new? I think there was a lot of feeling of, of, yeah, of that. Yeah, they didn't think it was worthy of a revival. Right. I mean, it, as you said, there wasn't a huge body of work to pull from. And the idea of doing something old when you could do something new. Right, right. Um, you know, you have to think of what, where America's at in mm-hmm. the late 40s, early 50s. Right. It's all about what's going to happen next. Right. You know, we've, new we, we, the new world has triumphed yeah. over the old yeah. world. Yeah, we don't and, want the old crap. Right. I mean, it's... It, 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 I wouldn't... Don't know if they thought about it just like that, but <laughs> <laughs> I think they did. Um, so they start; they they're just reviving shows. Uh, right. They revive George Kaufman's. Uh, I mean, a, a show that's never been revived in New York, save for this time. Uh, George Kaufman, Catherine Drayton comedy called First Lady. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, they brought in um, Helen uh, Gallahan, uh, had been a uh, star. A Broadway star, and then she served three terms in Congress. Wow. And then she went back to acting, so she was wow. the perfect person to play this. Yeah. Uh, and they revived Shakespeare, um, All's Well That Ends Well. Um, Showboat. In, Showboat. They did a, a great production of Showboat with Burl Ives. Um, the musicals started in 1954. They started the City Center, New York City Center Light Opera Company. Mm. And light opera companies at that time were pretty prevalent all over the country. And does that mean like musical theater? Musical theater. Yeah. It's exactly what it was considered. And musicals at that time were considered light operas. Right. right. You know. Um, and there's still uh, That's how many... I guessed what it meant. <laughs> <laughs> 
there are still many great mm-hmm. uh, uh, light opera associations all across the mm. country. But in the 40s and 50s, that was a big deal. Right. And there was a whole sort of network. So you could mm. do shows and, and travel around at these right. different light opera companies. Um, I don't know if City Center's productions actually traveled because they usually got some pretty big name talent. Mm. Um, but uh, th- it was all part and parcel of what was going on in America. Right. In 1952, uh, they need some money for what was then just the New York Theater, Com- New York uh, City Theater Company, and Gene Darrymple runs into Jose Ferrer on the street and asks him for a donation of a thousand dollars, which is a lot of money. But Jose Ferrer was a big star at that time, both on Broadway and in Hollywood. And Jose Ferrer says, "I can do you one better. Uh, I'll give you the thousand uh, dollars, and I'll, I'll." Do a whole season for you. Oh, wow. And he does. He does. Now, this uh, is before he was the the theater guy. No, no. He before he a, was in charge of. No, no. So. Th- I he, thought he, he was had, in charge of. He had been in charge. He had left. Oh, okay. Other people had oh, taken okay. over. And now, and she's now saying, she, okay. she was saying help. And okay. he said, I'll come back and do a season. Yeah, okay. In which he does four plays mm-hmm. that he not only, uh, uh, he directs three of them and stars in all four. Right. And Hirschfeld did a great, great drawing mm-hmm. of Jose Ferrer in the four different roles uh, uh, of the Shrike, which you've never heard of, Richard III, which he had never done in mm. New York before. Uh, the Shrike had been a hit on Broadway. Um, he did uh, Cyrano de Bergerac. Of course. Which was literally his go-to role. Right. If anybody remembered any show that Jose Ferrer did, it would be That's Cyrano. Right. And then the other show that he was intimately uh, uh, associated with was Charlie's Aunt. Oh, yes. So he did this season, and Hirschfeld does a drawing of four Jose Ferrer's sort of lined up on a stage uh, with uh, his character, Charlie's Aunt, poking out from behind a curtain. Um, it's really great. Jose Ferrer thought it was so great that he bought it. Mm. Uh, he, he acquired a lot of his drawings. They both lived in the Osborne uh, apartment building at that time on 57th Street. Hirschfeld and Ferrer. And Jose Jose Ferrer. And sometimes they would go to the theater together. I mean, uh, Hirschfeld would drive him to the theater uh, because Hirschfeld was always always driving someplace. Well, and he always got the perfect spot. Uh, That was his great gift. He would always get a good parking spot. But uh, Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy did the four poster there, and and Hirschfeld drew that. in 1955, uh, they wanted. They were thinking about doing a. Uh, they were going to do Mr. Roberts, uh, the World War II uh, play, mm-hmm. and uh, Francho Tone was going to be the lead, and he got very excited about it. Well, the producers Leland Hayward and Josh Logan, who had produced the original production, and Logan who had directed it, got wind that they wanted to revive it, but they had been working on a film adaptation. And they were worried that this revival would interfere with their success as film. So City Center had to scrap it. And they didn't know what they were going to do. And quickly, Gene Darwimple thought that William Soroyan's The Time of uh, uh, Your Life would be a great uh, play for them to do. And French Tone loved it. Um, one of the people they cast was Gloria Vanderbilt, mm. an old Hirschfeld friend. Yeah. Um, and the show, of course, Jean Darwimple wanted to create publicity. What she couldn't have fathomed is that Gloria Vanderbilt, who was married because it's a small world to Leopold Stokowski at the oh time. Oh my goodness. He, she announced their divorce mm. like two weeks before the show opened. Well, that was Perfect. worldwide celebrity yeah. news. Yeah. And it garnered a tremendous amount of publicity for the show. Any publicity is good publicity. That is exactly right. Um, also that same year, in that same season, they did a production of Othello with another black actor, William Marshall, who mm-hmm. would really become the great Othello in the second half of the 20th century. Right. He, would, he, would do, he would perform it at least six different times. He recorded wow. it. He filmed it. It was a, it was a great performance. Mm. Um, they brought back Carmen Jones. Um, they revived it, and, they, and it was a show that went out on tour. And Hirschfeld's drawing of the revival would be used on programs mm-hmm. all across the country. Um, they would do these uh, spring seasons of all musicals. And oftentimes it would be Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals. Because even right. at that time, 
they were like the gold standard. Right. Everyone loved a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, or for that matter, a Rodgers and Hart musical. And Richard Rodgers was, I mean, nobody had been reviving shows. These shows were getting a second life. He was pretty thrilled. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, they would do Carousel uh, with Barbara Cook, and uh, Brooks Atkinson thought it was a better production than the original Broadway production, mm. which is saying something. Well, they did so much Rodgers and Hammerstein and Rodgers and Hart that people started to complain, aren't there other people? And they did some Cole Porter too and right, right. other things. And so she wanted to do a season of musicals that weren't uh, Rodgers and Hart or Rodgers and Hammerstein. And so right after Say Darling, a Comden and Green, Julie Stein musical with Robert Morse, uh, um, closed on Broadway two weeks later it opened at City Center for like a two or three week run but Barbara Cook one of her great performances she considered in her career was The King and I Mm -hmm. at City Center that she did with Farley Granger Um, and they they produced a great amount of sort of frisian and Mm. sort of sexual Mm -hmm. energy even Mm -hmm. though there was nothing going on between them she's like whatever that chemistry is we had it and it was sexy as hell and uh, she had only fond memories of City Center. It re- City Center was the first place that critics started to take Barbara Cook seriously. Mm. Uh, she had done uh, Oklahoma there and uh, oh, two different nice. productions of Carousel, um, uh, eventually The King and I. Um, and she got the first great reviews of her career mm. right there. Um, in 1960, they bring in the Kabuki Theater, the Grand Kabuki, which had never performed in America before. Oh, wow. And it's crazy. Hirschfeld does an incredible drawing. Yeah. Uh, in which he signs, uh, this is the United Nations of shows, because mm. he signs this drawing in Japanese. Right. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's vertical. It's vertical, yeah. as it would be as it, Yeah, in, in he really Japanese. does. He does it. <laughs> um, what's interesting about, uh, in doing research about the, uh, the City Center productions, um, so the Grand Kabuki comes to City Center, and fortunately, it's right at the time where there's a strike. Mm on Broadway uh, over uh, pay and working conditions. And for three weeks, there's no Broadway shows. And it coincides with the performances of the Grand Kabuki. So a lot of actors come and see, because each week they change the program. And because City Center's not Broadway. Right, Right. exactly. So they keep keep, going. Exactly. Um, Although some of their performances would be considered Broadway. um, I think one of the other great pieces um, that he did at City Center. He again takes us into the rehearsal room, and it's Bob Fosse playing the lead in Pal Joey. Oh, this yeah. was essentially the dream role of Bob Fosse. Mm. <laughs> he had understudied it on Broadway, never had a chance to play it. Mm. They asked him to do it in 1961, and he loved it, played the entire show with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. Oh my gosh. I mean, he was essentially the pal Joey yeah. character. And so, <laughs> so it, was for easy. Him, it was easy for him. He, they toured around a little bit with it. Uh, and in 1963, they asked him to do it again. And it's the only time uh, Bob Fosse got nominated for a Tony as a performer. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, theater would end at City Center in about the mid-60s mm. after uh, once Lincoln Center, Richard Rogers starts his own musical theater at Lincoln Center. Oh. And so eventually none of those shows are available. Mm. The actors and actresses who have been playing for scale, right? you know, if you were going to play at City Center for scale or Lincoln Center for top dollar, right. you're going to play at Lincoln right. Center. Right. And it really ends up sort of killing the musical mm. theater program right. at uh, City Center. And as I said, City Center goes on after Lincoln Center, but it's hobbled. Mm. And it goes into the 70s in a really weakened position. At one point, it looks like it's going to close. Oh, no. And a group of people led by Howard Squadron um, get it landmark status. Mm. And they create a new corporation that's just going to be devoted to dance. And for most of the 70s, and 80s, that's all that's going on. Mm, you know, there's still there's still rentals, the things that come in. Mm-hmm. Monty Python comes in in 1976 for uh, a, like a week or two of performances. They record a, an album there. Mm-hmm. Richard Pryor records parts of an album there, uh, a live album there. Uh, Barry Manilow plays there. I mean, all kinds of p- things right, happen, right. but it's primarily a dance uh, house. Um, and then in 1994, 
they start to do something. They they want to bring musical theater back in. Right. They can't afford to mount huge productions. Mm. So they come up with this idea of doing concert versions of musicals. Right. And they call it the Encore series. Uh, the first one is appropriately Fiorello, oh, the musical okay. about LaGuardia. Yeah. And... Uh, Right away, people love it. Mm. Even though they're just up there in, in sort of evening clothes. Right, right. Uh, with microphones. With, with microphones, yeah. with scripts. Right. Uh, you know, to hear these shows again that weren't that you didn't get to hear that often, it was a great experience. They got great Broadway performers. It was a short, it was like 10 days of rehearsal uh, um, and maybe five to seven performances. You would do it in about two weeks. Mm-hmm. It's totally insane, totally crazy. But it was sort of like, Summer stock used to be where you would have one week and two week summer stock where you were right. rehearsing and, and performing a show in literally no time. Um, well, in 1996, they do a uh, they decide to do a what they say is a concert version of Chicago, the Candor and Ebb musical. Right. Uh, but um, Walter Bobby, who had been the music director, was directing it. He had a very clear idea of what he wanted to do. Mm. And it was the first time they did, they, they took the performers out of evening clothes and very simple but very seductive costumes are given right. to all the performers. And if you ask anybody who was there, the first, the final dress rehearsal, I mean, the place exploded mm. after the performance. They mm. couldn't believe it. Everybody knew that this could not just stay at, at City, City Center. Center. And eventually, uh, it is brought to Broadway. Right. Uh, it's the only time that Hirschfeld draws a essentially an on-course production. Right. Um, this show, I mean, it's a revival of a show that in 1975 right. had opened on Broadway, had been drawn by Hirschfeld. Mm-hmm. Bob Posse, you know, it was, a, it was really a Bob Posse show. Mm-hmm. And uh, it had been a minor hit in 1975, right. but it was too cynical for 1975. Mm. But in 1996... It wasn't too cynical at all. In fact, it seemed to be just right. Mm. Uh, you know, sort of time had caught up with this musical. And if you're saying, oh, is that the Chicago that's running today? It is the Chicago that is running today. Wow. It is the uh, longest running American musical on Broadway and the second longest running uh, musical in Broadway history. Wow. You know, beat only by... Phantom, of course. I never I, let David forget. Yeah, I let her say it every show because... <laughs> She loves it. Um, although Hirschfeld wouldn't draw Encore's productions, uh, he would, um, he was a regular, he, he went to all of them, mm, usually mm-hmm. on Sunday afternoons. Oh. And uh, I just speculate that he probably waited until they made sure they knew what they were they doing. everything right. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, a lot of the shows he had drawn originally. Right. Uh, original a lot of the shows were written by people that he knew. Right. I mean, for him. And that was like looking in the past, and Hirschfeld was not a guy right. who looked in the past. Yeah. Um, but he really liked great performances. He really liked great shows and great yeah. songs. So it was. It, he loved it. Um, and luckily, we have one record yeah, of Yeah, one great that. one. The only yeah. one you need. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> really. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the longest-running musical, American musical on Broadway being a revival, no less. Right. It's just really, yeah. it's really remarkable. What got us thinking about all this, in addition to the 75th anniversary, is the fact that um, I put together uh, an exhibition on the on this history uh, that uses Hirschfeld drawings, but not exclusively Hirschfeld drawings. Uh, one is at the uh, Performing Arts Library at Lincoln Center. We've talked about it before. Yeah. And one is over at City Center itself. Yeah. They're both free and open to the public. Um, you can see about 25 drawings in both exhibitions. And, yeah, each. So mm-hmm. there's 50. If you go to both. No, no, no. It's not 50 altogether. Oh. There's 13 in one and oh, uh, was... 18 in another. Oh, 18. Maybe I thought they were both 18. Yeah. The, there's <laughs> uh, there's uh, one or two prints in each one. Beverly Sills is mm-hmm. in both shows. The two different Marcel Marceaux. Yep. Uh, so there's one in each, each show. You got to go to each to see both Very, of them. The, Beverly Sills is the only repeat. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's all kinds of other things. You'll see... Uh, at Lincoln Center, uh, a wall devoted to all the dancers that have uh, performed there. There's a whole section on the musical theater history. Um, there are cases full of really wonderful and weird props. It's probably the only time an electric chair has been at Lincoln Center. Assassins? Assassins, nice. of course. Yes, indeed. But we've got all kinds of things there. Mm. And over at City Center, you can see things that are from the backstage and pieces of what it looked like. Uh, in the 20s, right. uh, you can see the leading ladies of a city center. You can see these wonderful uh, 
photographs from Jerome Robbins' uh, performances or, or ballets that have been performed there. Um, it's it's really great. I encourage everyone to see it. The Lincoln Center show is up until March 2nd, and the City Center installation is up through June. Mm. So uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, you, we've given you an opportunity to not only, uh, you can look at the images uh, on, on in the show notes. Uh, right. Catherine always puts them there. Yep. And this is one of those rare instances where you can actually go out and see the original drawings right. as well. <laughs> not everyone that yeah. we talked about, no, but no, a lot no, of there's them. There's a lot of them, though. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we're on Facebook, the Al Hirschfeld Foundation, Twitter and Instagram at Al Hirschfeld. Uh, the podcast is alhirschfeldfoundation.org slash podcast S for. Stakowski, yeah, <laughs> nice. That was a good one. <laughs> Our theme music is by the wonderful, legendary Dick Hyman. And you can learn more about Dick and his music at dickhyman.com. Uh, if you want to uh, berate us about something, give us a piece of advice, suggest an idea for a show. You can send that to david no. at info at alhirschfeldfoundation.org. It's just info at that's what I said. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. No, it's not David Info. It's just Info. <laughs> um, all right. So and we hope you enjoy, and we will see you soon. <laughs>